0: Please open your Bibles to the book of James. We find ourselves in chapter 2. We're looking at the sin of favoritism, and the subject of today's sermon is rich man, poor man. Partiality of any kind is a sin. I want that to settle in. If you consider where we are in our cultural climate, whether it's CRT, critical race theory, or COVID, there's separation, different viewpoints, and discrimination based on those viewpoints. Some people choose churches because those people in the church wear a mask. Some people choose churches because some people are disobedient, like you, and they don't wear a mask. But those who make the decision, either or, discriminate against those who don't. Why can't you have in the same church people who wear masks and people who don't? We live in a country that is plagued with racism and discrimination. Now those of you who don't know, I'm married to a Caucasian, also known as a white person. <laughs> So what I'm about to say is not because I am colored. It's because it is a reality that affects us all. The Dutch Reformed Church chose the side of wickedness. They chose the side of government, obeyed government. For those of you who are Romans 13 proponents, what should the church do when the government is wrong? You obey God. Which the Dutch Reformed Church did not do, but they were obedient to government. Instead of standing on the word of truth, they took the side of government. While the effects of racism can still be felt in many areas in our church, sorry in our um, country, the church. The church should be the only area where racism is not seen at all. Why? I'll answer the question in a moment's time. Sadly, this is not the case. We say we are against racism. Yet, we cannot think through the biblical definition of race. Do you know that there is one race? If we understand that God has only made one race, why then do we discriminate based on skin color? Why do we apply racist ideology if there is only one race? What I mean is this. If there's only one group of people God made, then there should be no place for racism, right? Because we are all then connected, one family, the human race. But why do we have the hurdle of racism in the church of Jesus Christ? Because we perpetuate worldly philosophies. We perpetuate worldly language. We speak of coloreds, whites, and blacks. That is racist by its nature because we look at the outside and we determine they are whites, coloreds, and blacks. It's a human person a being made in the image of God, but we think through the way the culture speaks. Listen to what John MacArthur says in his book, Think Biblically. A quote. New believers coming to the church who come into the church bring their worldviews with them. Furthermore, those Christians already in the church who do not understand worldview issues will not realize they are adopting non-Christian ethic or worldviews. When we talk like the world, we start to think like the world and we act like the world. We don't realize it, but we start to think through culture the reason so many christians struggle thinking through social justice blm crt um, gender fluidity is because we are not filtering our thought processes through scripture the bible is absolutely clear on all of those issues but rather we follow culture and we follow our emotions We're fearful of what people would say rather than what God says about us. We major on feelings rather than truth. We base our perspectives on what people say rather than what God has said. Men in the church make the decision based on popular opinion that is common today. We do not recognize that we are influenced by these external Voices, the world majors on discrimination while at the same time flying the flag of unity and peace. You cannot have both. The church should be the one place where racism dies. It should be the one place where discrimination and partiality is denounced. Why? Because we have found our unity in who? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Race is obliterated by the cross. Discrimination is dead at the foot of the cross. So why is the church then so divided? Because we have not left our worldly views. We found our union through the blood of Jesus Christ, not by the shedding of blood on streets. One of the plagues that we face today is CRT, critical race theory. Some Christians are calling it racial reconciliation. It's in the name. You've already made a distinction. Critical race theory, to think critically about race and the oppression that is caused by a certain race. In critical race theory, those who have a paler skin, their sin is, get this, their skin color, their whiteness. They can never come to repentance. Why? Because they are perpetually white. This is linked to what is now commonly called deconstructionist hermeneutic. To build a new Church life, philosophy of life, by deconstructing what has always been believed. Why? Because what has always been believed has been created and constructed by a white man. I thought Jesus built his church. So family, religion, gender is now deconstructed and reconstructed to form a new Global identity. If you follow BLM acutely, you go to the website and they've now removed some of the, the language they used to uh, have on there. You will see that the trans movement is part of BLM. How? That breaking down family structures and patriarchy is part of BLM. Why? That church that is based on white prim- um, uh, philosophy Not the Bible, white philosophy has to be deconstructed and rebuilt. Why? Because at the heart of it, it's discriminatory. They don't care about who you are as a person. They care about what you look like. Those on the outside of the circle of intersectionality, those of us who don't buy into it, are the oppressors. And those who are, who have the majority of intersectionality are the oppressed. They, the oppressors, must be dethroned. Their philosophy must be replaced. This is strange because the world wants to claim that they are seeking reconciliation and truth. That is what our government says. But it falsely provides Unification around ungodly principles. You can never have unity apart from Christ. Never. Critical race theory identifies sin as oppression. Race as the great sin. Wow. CRT, evolution, wokeness, I put evolution in there, and BLM are elements of alienation and discrimination then why does the church of Jesus Christ buy into it because we cannot think through it biblically these social components touch our lives and some of you don't like when I speak about cultural issues it touches every one of you because we work and live in this world more and more, we are being conditioned to think through these things. And Before you know it, you start to use the pronouns that they use of themselves. Before you know it, you identify by them by saying things that they would say of themselves without thinking about it. At the heart of these, quote, social saviors is a sin of discrimination. The very thing that they aim to destroy governs their ideology. What we should realize is that the sin of favoritism or partiality by its very nature divides. Secondly, it is driven by evil reasoning. Partiality of any kind causes the vision no matter how noble the cause. There are those who are part of these various groups who are genuine about um, not undoing past atrocities, but working towards a better future. Uh, Let me tell you this. It's not going to get better at all without the king on his throne. It cannot get better until Christ takes his seat on the throne. And praise the Lord the day is coming. But until that day, it's got to get worse. So pull up your socks and tie tie up your loins in biblical language and get ready for the fight of your life. Because they want us to join their party. They want us to join their ideology. They want us. To think and speak like them. But we, as the church of Jesus Christ, belong to whom? The Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, we will see that James illustrates what certain, what partiality looks like in a church. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers show no partiality. When you see my brothers followed by a command, know that James is making a transition to a new section. And I've pointed this out to you when we started the book. So we are now in a section, and this is the most sustained discussion that he has on the subject, or on any subject in this book. Chapter 2, the entirety of chapter 2 relates to this. Verse 1 through 13 deals with faith and discrimination, and then uh, 14 through to 26 deals with faith and deeds. They are both connected. If you say you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have the faith of our Lord, then you will not discriminate. If you have faith in our Lord or have the faith of our Lord, then your works will demonstrate that you have faith in our Lord. So that is the big picture perspective of James chapter 2. It is important to James this subject of discrimination. The outline for chapter 2 verse 1 through to 13 goes as follows. The command against partiality is in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Secondly, we have the illustration of partiality, which is verse 2 through to 4. The illustration, that is, this week. Then you have the reason to avoid partiality, which we will look at next week, that is, 5 um, through to 13. So this morning, we will look at the illustration of partiality. There's a natural flow through two through to 4. And everything relates to the if in verse 2 and the then, which is not in your text, in verse four. So if you look at it with me, verse two through to four, we will try to elucidate this main point that James gives. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions?" among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. If you do this, then you are doing that. So his logical argument is, if this is true, 2 and 3, then 4, this 4, is the most logical outcome. So, if you do show discrimination in this way, then have you not made distinctions among yourself and become Judges with evil thoughts is the outcome. So James sets up this grammatically as an if-then clause. If this is true, then this will be true of you as well. And we will look at how he does that. Here we have the illustration of partiality. Take note, it's a picture of partiality. Remember the overarching command is in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. Do not be partial. That is the command. That is the application. That is what they must not be doing. Don't ever show any kind of partiality. It's plural. Partialities. Having faith granted by God is incompatible with any kind of favoritism. In other words, it is inconsistent to have faith from God and be partial. It is inconsistent to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then discriminate at the same time. It's an impossibility in James' mind. That should shock us considering how CRT, CRT and BLM have so permeated the Church of Jesus Christ that we don't see the discrimination that we apply to white Christians. There are a few things that we must consider about this illustration. The first point that I want to make, it's not a point, it's a statement, is that it's parabolic. It is like a parable. It is not the point. He makes the point with a picture. So don't get lost in the details in verse 2 through to 4. The point is very simple. If you discriminate, then you cause divisions and you break the law. That is his point, and you will see that as we go through this in a moment's time. It is all wrapped up in this one little word, if. For if. Let's say, in the way that we would say it, let's say for the sake of argument, or let's suppose a man comes in wearing five clothing. He's not saying, oh, this is happening, but let's say for the sake of argument, this is the case. This is how you're going to respond. And if you do respond like this, that is a sin. So stay with me as I try to explain the nuances of two and three. Last week I said that there are a plurality of partiality that is in view when James says, show no partiality. Literally, show no partialities. It's plural. No, various kinds of favoritisms or various kinds of discriminations. Avoid that. The illustration is here to point out or clarify that partiality partiality by its very nature is evil. So there are two major problems with partiality. Number one, partiality is sin because it breaks the law. Pay attention to verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing, you say, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, pause there. In verse two, we have this man with a gold ring—literally, the gold-ringed man, the gold-fingered man. Yeah, like the James Bond movie. Only those of you who are old will get that. This man comes in with his gold ring on his finger, a gold um, ring on his finger, and fine clothing. Now, um, wearing. A ring was custom amongst certain Jews, so that's not a big deal. But a gold ring, that's, that's, that's a bit unique. In, in a Roman society, which um, I think James is, is pulling from, it is those who are the elite, the, the, the most important people of the society, wore gold rings. They were set apart, apart from everyone else and they displayed their position by their gold ring. Today we wear gold rings or rings to indicate that we are married. And I don't know if you noticed, but the LGBTQ, they also wear a ring. I think it's on the thumb, right? Thumb or the pinky, it doesn't matter. Uh, but they wear a ring to indicate that they are, yeah, not straight. I'll put it that way. Back in the day, a sign of wealth. A sign of great uh, ostentation and position was shown by this gold ring. And so James catches that and says, well, just imagine. Just imagine a man walks in and he has a gold ring. And immediately they would think a place of honor, a man of importance. And this is amplified by this last clause, a fi- and, and fine clothing. He has extravagant garb on. And I don't want you to miss the fact that James goes a bit overboard to explain the guy's presence. It's overwhelming. Our translations merely say fine clothing. This is more than just wearing uh, silk or what's fine clothing? Denim. But I don't know. <laughs> no, this is... Something that relates more closely to royal clothing. Something that is set apart. Understand that most people in those days had two sets of, two pieces of clothing. One for everyday wear, which they wore 364 days of the year. Until the special day. That is the fine clothing, the special clothing for that day. Most important event in the life of the individual, usually a wedding or going to see a king. So what do they wear on a day-to-day basis? The normal clothing, the stinky, dirty clothing. And you can actually see he makes that contrast. Those who had fine clothing, wear it, who wore it on a regular basis were those who had more than they needed in clothing. So the contrast is already starting to be set apart. This guy, on a regular basis, comes in with almost a royal garb. Now, this fine wear is also expressed in Luke chapter 23. So turn over there. I want to show you the weight of this clothing. Luke chapter 23, verse 11. And Herod, with his sh- Sold, soldiers, sorry, I have a problem with my one tooth. <laughs> so I'm, I'm struggling with the word S and sh. but at the time. Treated with uh, contempt, him with contempt, and mocked him. Then arrayed him in, see those two words? Splendid clothing, highlighted, underline it. And sent him back to Pilate. If you read Matthew's account, they dressed him and gave him a reed. They put splendid, literally, royal clothing on him and gave him a reed. Why? To mock him as king. They're saying, well, since you are the king, since you, you purport yourself to be the king of the Jews, let's dress you as king. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a royal garb on him and they put a reed in his hand. Now, don't think as a, just a flimsy stick it was it was a a firm uh, read that that, w- that would be given to somebody in authority splendid clothing could be the garment of a king or could be fine clothing that sets you apart above everyone else royal clothing kingly attire the word literally means bright and glistening he had radiant clothes on. James is trying to give us the picture that this was a man of honor, a man of high esteem, a man of great importance. This is an overwhelming image of this person. First, he's, he's shown to be significant by his ring, and then his clothing sets him apart from anyone else. Nobody wears what he's got on. He wants us to see the the Overwhelming ridiculousness of this situation. While walking into a synagogue, what would a rich man with fine clothing be doing in a synagogue? I mean, that should be the first question. What's he doing there? The absurdity becomes more evident if you realize that the end of verse 1 is the word the glory. In Hebrew, it's the word chavod, which means heavy and weighty and glorious and majestic. All of that is wrapped up in this word, the glory. And I left that off from last week's sermon because I wanted to make it, made the point this week. So James says that if you hold the faith of our Lord, if you have that faith, you should show no partiality. Why? Because of who he is. The glory. He makes a soft contrast between who you should really be concerned about. The one who is majestic and glorious. The one who by his very nature stands up and out above everyone else. Jesus. The Lord. The glory. And then you have this guy. There's no comparison. Do you see what he's saying? You pay attention to this guy. But you forget who's the one on the throne. You forget who's the one who's really glorious. Outward focus on man clouds the true glory within the church, which is Jesus Christ. When we reduce the identification of the Gloria to a mere adjectival glorious Lord, we lose some of the resonance and weight that James wants us to see. The real one who's majestic in his church is the glory, Jesus. The one who is weighty, the one who should be revered, is not man, but Christ. So James, as he pans over to the, to the rich man, he, he quickly shifts the attention to the entrance of the poor man. Notice what he says about him. He makes it very plain, very simple for a very specific reason. The contrast has to be great, magnificent. And a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. That's it. There's no splendor about this guy. He's just a normal bloke on the street who does what he does. The word here, shabby clothing, literally means filthy, soiled, dirty clothes. This is what he wears when he goes to work. Some of us wear suit and tie and have a certain garb that we put on when we go to work. This is who he is. He's not more than this. He's not less than this. This is who he is. He wears his clothes. His his status is identified by what he wears. Shabby clothes. So bright, radiant, royal clothing compared to filthy clothing. You see the visual contrast. James says, you take note. Of the man who comes in with bright, glistening royal clothing. First and foremost. There's a continuation uh, that is emphasized in the word comes into. It's repeated twice. It is almost used in a narrative form to emphasize that as he comes in, this guy also comes in. Take note of it. For if a man wearing a gold a ring and fine clothing comes in to your assembly and that comes in can naturally carry over to the next verse, but it doesn't. He says, and a poor man in clothing also comes in. You see that connection? And also? So if this guy comes in and also this guy comes in, there is a um, rapid form in the, in the way that he's writing here. So this is not two situations that is separated by time. You have the rich man entering. And you have the poor man entering almost at the same time. Not right after each other, but almost at the same time. They are there together at the same moment. But the rich man comes in first. And then he says to them, and you pay special attention to him. You look upon his garb and you already made up your mind. You look upon his outward appearance and you know exactly where you are going to land on your decision. It's interesting the word you here and you pay attention to him is in the plural. The eyes of all of them pan over to the rich man. He walks in and everybody looks over to his side. My wife made an illustration the other day and I thought about this as she uh, beautifully illustrated um, to her, her parents how I pushed her down a slide. She said, um, she didn't get hurt, so it doesn't matter. She she said, we went up the water slide, and she was up there, and I pushed her down, and as she came down, everybody looked towards her, and one lady said, he didn't have to push you. Yeah, I don't know about that, but anyway, it, it's that, that idea. When he walks in, everybody's eyes go that way. Everybody starts looking to him, but it's more than just looking his direction, it's already making a decision based on who he is. Before anything is said, the deed is done based on what he wears. And as a result of that, you say to him, the decision is made, and as a result of that, you say to him, you come sit in this excellent place. The good place there is sit in this prime position. There's a, a a double whammy against the poor man. You you go stand over there. It's literally you go find yourself a place over there. They didn't even they didn't even point out a place for him to go stand. He he had to go meandering around. Or, where, where, where where do I stand? No, no no you you go find a place for yourself. Or if you don't find a place, come sit by my feet. Wow, that's a a double show of disrespect to this man walking in. It's dehumanizing, and that's the point. He says before a word is said, merely based on how he looks, you've made up your decision, and you've already demonstrated that you've shown partiality. So you give the prime spot opposition to this man. Now there's something that is often missed in verse 2. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, see that word? That should be circled, highlighted, asterisked, and right above it, synagogue. So that tells you a lot about what is happening. First of all, it's the early church that is composed mainly, if not all, of Jews. Why do I say that? Because primarily those who went to the synagogue were what? Jews. That is such a significant statement. And sadly, our translations put assembly. Yes, synagogue was for the assembly, but the word itself gives the image and the historical context of what is taking place. And there's a lot in that. And I'm going to point that out to you in a, in a moment's time. What, what's taking place here is James saying to them, before a word is spoken, your minds have been made up based on what you see. Your visual senses has informed your minds to make a certain judgment. This is heart wrenching. I remember a story from church history, and uh, um, it's one of the Wesleys. I forgot which one it was. When the Church of England was filled with men of high ranking, high ranking officials. Um, Uh, People of the prime of society. And the low man, the people on the street, were not allowed to come to church. And they eventually had to meet in graveyards and in in quarries um, to to, to meet for church. Because the normal, poor person, the common man, was not allowed to come into the church because the church was so filled with people of prime position. That's the weight of this illustration. You have made such an error in your discrimination. You don't realize your sinner. over here. I'm going to pull in some history and point out the significance of this moment that James is um, pointing out here. I think the picture is pretty clear. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and that's what he wants to put across. A man with radiant clothing, bright and glistening, uh, uh, walks in, and you've made up your mind. That's what he wants him to, re- to, to realize. Your minds are made up before anything is said. This is an extreme situation that illustrates the absurdity of the moment. Now the illustration shows what the problem is, but the rest of the passage provides us with the context. Verse 2, for instance, that word synagogue tells us that these Jews were meeting for a very specific reason. Now when we walk into chapter 2 of James, we naturally think of a church worship occasion because that's all we do in church. But he does not say church. In fact, he does use the word church in chapter 5, I believe it's verse 14, Ekklesia. Why doesn't he use it here? Because he's not thinking of a church worship service. James is thinking of a specific situation that is taking place within a synagogue. That is why he mentions synagogue. And I see a few frowns. And I will prove to you that this is not a worship service. We generally take it like that. Because most people would say, well... Clearly, this is discrimination in a worship service. No, slow down. Let the text inform us what is taking place here. So first of all, synagogue tells us that this is Jews meeting for a specific reason. What is a synagogue? A sy- originally, it just meant a meeting place. It took place, um, started taking place during the Babylonian captivity. And it just started developing after that, why? Because Babylon, uh, Babylonia took them out of the, the, um, out of Jerusalem and destroyed or, or damaged the, the temple, which meant they could not go back. They could not go and worship at the temple. As a result of that, they started establish these little places of worship, these little places of gathering. Initially, it was just a place of meeting. That's what it was called. A house of prayer. That's what they all, that's what they did. But it was also a place where a legal decision had to be made. Whenever the, the, the community had to make a decision on something, the synagogue was the place. Previously it was at the gate. Now it's in the synagogue. Take note of that. Most commentators will acknowledge that James, in this passage, quotes at least three different passages or pulls them in. The first is Leviticus 19, and I want you to go there. What I'm going to do now is build the historical context in which James is thinking about as he builds this chapter. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. I was taught that context is not only king, but it is key. And if you leave your own passage or context, the connection to that context must be a direct connection. So if James is quoting Leviticus 19, then there must be a contextual connection as well. So take note, in verse 19, Uh, Chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. I want you to take note of these words. You shall not do injustice. This is a strong command. You shall never doing justice in the courts. You shall never be partial. But take note of this. Poor or the great. Generally, when we think of partiality, we think of rich against the poor. But it says you in your court should never be partial whether it's for the poor or for the rich. You should never make a, dis- a decision based on who they are as poor or who they are as rich. Partiality goes both ways. See, it's a misnomer to think that discrimination can only go one way. In our culture, discrimination or racism can only come from white people. Only white people can be racist. Uh, no. Do you know that coloreds can be racist with coloreds? And it happens quite a lot. They will call you a coconut. Not me. And I don't care if they do. But the principle that James is saying, sorry, that that, uh, Moses is giving in this law, is don't show partiality to anyone in the courts when you make judgment. Take note of those words. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. The second passage that James draws from is 16 and verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Again, very strong adversative here. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of justice. Did you catch that? It causes division and blinds you. Hmm. What's the context here? Verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns, that the Lord, that Yahweh, your God, is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall what? Judge the people with righteous judgments. See that word judge? That is important. It gives us the context in which verse 19 takes place. You shall not pervert justice. Where do judges judge? At the gate or in the court? Keep that in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 1 which is the fundamental foundation for chapter 16, verse 16. Deuteronomy 1, 16. Same command, take note of the words. And I charge your judges... At that time, you're the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. What is the command that James gives? You shall not show what? Partiality. That is the command. It's the same command that you find in the Old Testament. You shall hear the small and the great alike. In other words, you will not give preference to anybody. And you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Hmm. There were words that were repeated over and over again. Words like judge, judgment, case, and court. Over and over again, in these verses, that forms the groundwork, the foundation for James' claim in chapter 2. You find these same words, judge, judgment, case, and courts. Now go back to James chapter 2. Verse 4. Have you not made Distinctions, literally judgments, among yourselves, and become what is that word? Judges hmm. with evil thoughts. Verse six, brothers, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you uh, and the ones who drag you into what? Huh? Court. Verse nine. If you show Partiality, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Convicted, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become Guilty of all of them. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment will be merciless. You get my point, right? Over and over you get the same words you find in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Judgment, courts, and law. Hmm. What is James saying? James is showing the nature of their sin, by means of the illustration and the rest of the context. This is more than just showing discrimination against an individual. This is more than just favoring a rich man or a man with flashy clothing and rejecting a poor man. No, what he's saying is that you have broken the law. He links all that he's saying to the law. Because the law gives a very clear command, do not show partiality. That's the law that gives that command. And James goes back and says, yeah, that's what I'm pointing to. You are lawbreakers. Fundamentally, partiality, discrimination is the breaking of the law. So what James is setting up here is a court case. So let's read verse 2 through to 4 with that in mind again. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention, you've already made up your mind, you've already given him the benefit of the doubt to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in the excellent place. he's clear from all the guilt because you already gave him the position of the benefit of the doubt. And to the poor man, well, we know who you are. I just look at your clothes and I know you're guilty. So go find a place, wherever you want, just just go, go, go find a place or sit by my feet because you're already guilty. Before a word is said, I said earlier, they've already made a judgment in their mind. Why does he use the words courts, judgment, and, and um, law? Well, James is saying that when you have a situation in your synagogue, a situation where a rich man and a poor man comes in to settle a court case, to settle a legal case, guess what you do. This is what you are tempted to do, to favor the man with the fine clothing. What kind of cases would they be bringing What chapter 5 tells us? That the rich were withholding the wages from the poor, the laborers, the workers. And James is saying that hypothetically, if they should bring that case to court, who's going to win? The rich. Why? Because you've already made up your mind before the case is heard. This is a legal case. Partiality is breaking the, the law. That's the point that he's making. Your choice of another person over this poor man, is law-breaking. James links their actions to the breaking of God's law. And I will point that out next time I preach, that there's a connection to the law in these verses. Every passage in the Old Testament was set in a legal context. Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 1, and Leviticus 19. All of them are set in the court uh, system. And all of them include both rich and poor. And two of them say you will not be partial to anyone, whether they are rich or uh, poor or or great. Hence the question, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and have you not become judges with evil thoughts? You've already made a judgment. Look down at verse 9. Fundamentally, Discrimination is a breaking of the law. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality is sin because it breaks the law. It breaks God's command. Remember, audience Jewish. He can clearly and quickly make the transition from Old Testament law to what you should be doing. Now, there is a nuance here called the royal law, and I'll get to that when we we speak about it later. Partiality reveals your sin, and that's the point he's making. Partiality reveals who you are. Lawbreakers, it shows our shortfall. In other words, you're acting as if you are no longer governed by God. So not only is the sin of partiality Uh, breaking the law, but the sin of partiality divides, as is seen in verse 4. It also divides. Have you not made distinctions? The rhetorical question here in both cases, expect the answer yes. Have you not made distinctions? Yes. Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Yes, we have. James is saying that partiality, regardless of what it is, separates. That make distinctions is to make a judgment between two. To separate, which means to divide. You, among yourselves, have made division, distinctions. It divides. See, partiality is a unity killer. Favoritism is a bond breaker. Let, let Let me put it this way. Parents, some parents, not not me, some parents have favorite kids. If you've got more than one, you probably have a favorite kid. I see a nod in this area, to saying. And when eventually it comes out that this one is favored, it doesn't sit well with the rest of the family, right? And normally it's the last one that is born that gets all the preferential treatment. I know because I'm the last one. One out of five. And, yeah, my siblings did not like the fact that my mom favored me. And I'll gladly say that. Think about Jacob. Who did he favor? Joseph, right? Hmm. What did he give him to show his preferential status? A robe of many colors. What did Joseph do? Instead of wearing it at home with his dad, he goes to his brothers and, look what my dad gave me. And then on top of that, he says, you know what, I had a dream last night and you're all going to bow down to me. He didn't help his cause. Yeah, that's why they threw him in the, in the, um, the well. Favoritism, partiality, discrimination of any kind breaks unity. James is saying, listen, before a word is said in your courts, before anything has been decided, you already broke unity. That's the sin. You broke the law, and as a result of that, you break unity. It shows the horrid nature of the discrimination that is taking place. It breaks God's law, law, and it breaks God's people. Let me end on this. You're acting as judges, but you're controlled by evil thoughts. I initially had a problem with that evil thoughts, couldn't make heads or tails from it. But he's saying that you are acting as those who are not submitted to the law. You're not controlled by God. You've allowed culture to determine your action. Your kind of behavior is common amongst the Romans, but should not be named amongst you. They have become a law unto themselves and not submitted to the law of Christ. James says you play judge and jury over the case and you've made evil decisions because in your heart you've already made a discrimination. And that gets seen in how you treat the poor person. So what James is showing here is application what it looks like, what discrimination looks like in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in this context, it was in a Jewish uh, court system. And he says, well, this is what orthopraxis, what good behavior looks like. It's undiscriminatory. It's not partial. One of the things that I think we struggle with is that we always look for uh, I didn't explain that. Orthopraxy is the, the, the connective to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is genuine, true words, fundamental truth that results in orthopraxy. So you cannot have genuine, good living if you don't have orthodoxy. Make sense? So James here gives us orthopraxy, how to have good behavior, but it is predicated upon what? Orthodoxy. God has given us His Word to live by. Scripture is to control how we behave, not culture. Those who have faith in our Lord must avoid partiality. I'm, I'm always amazed how Christians in our climate fall pray to CRT, BLM, all these cultural problems. I don't get it. It should be very clear from Scripture that that is not the way that God desires believers to act. We forget partiality is a sin and should be avoided at all costs in the church. James shows that when we act this way, we are lawbreakers. We disrespect God's law and we we sow seeds of disunity. Favoritism is illustrated here not by the fact that there's a rich and a poor man in the church but by the fact that you've made a decision based on what you see we do it often and uh, i said to a friend of mine the other day he doesn't understand why nobody wants to come uh, you know to seminars and and when he teaches and um, he's he's just not as well received as a person who has a foreign accent i said well that's the problem and I don't know if this is just a South Africanism or if it's the same in Canada or in the US. I think I've seen it a little bit in the US as well. Doesn't matter how bad you are in your teaching, the fact that you have an accent wins people over. Doesn't matter who he is, just the fact that he has an accent oh my word, I'm going to go listen to that guy because he's a foreigner. Are we not showing partiality? Hmm. Favoritism can be seen in a variety of ways, refusing to help somebody. And James will deal with that later on. It's discrimination, associating with some and not others. That's discrimination. Having favorites in church is discrimination. All of these things James deals with. Now, he doesn't deal with clickishness. It's a problem in a lot of churches where people gravitate towards a certain click, and they stick with that click. Are we not showing partiality? Are we not choosing certain people over others? The illustration here is not to limit the scope of partiality. And when we look at James chapter 2, we tend to think of only the problem of rich and poor. I said to you, it's an illustration. He's making a point that the Jews would understand in a legal context. When you have to make a judgment between two people, you base it on what you see. and That's the point he's trying to make. Before, a word is said you've made a decision and so you've become law breakers. It is not good enough to say that we have faith in God and act as if his faith doesn't affect how we live. The sad reality is that those who support BLM, CRT and all the like, they are employing these evils in the church in a Endeavor to combat discrimination. But in the endeavor to break racial discrimination, they also cause racial discrimination. How can we say we are faith in God and still discriminate is James' point. You cannot have both. Let's pray. Father, we are needing to confess that so many times, in so many ways, we do discriminate. We do choose others over um, some in the church. We do show partiality. Forgive us, Lord. Sometimes we follow the world in how they desire us to treat certain people. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to live in a way that demonstrates that we do have faith in you. Help us to live in a way that does not include partiality, that does not include discrimination. Help us to be all-inclusive of your body because you have united us in Christ. Help us to love each other equally and to serve each other equally. Lord, forgive us for seeking to, to find favor with the world while we're rejecting those who are in the body of Christ. Help us to love in a way that will honor you in every way that we relate to your people in this church and outside of this church. As we give thanks to you, for your glory's sake we pray. Amen.